Abraham Lincoln said, quote, this generation will nobly save or meanly lose the last best hope of earth. The way is plain, peaceful, generous, just. A way which if followed, the world will forever applaud and God must forever bless. Lincoln's way to peace remains elusive as war continues to be the first best choice to resolve disagreements between nations. Today, we're looking at the work of a woman who tried to lead her generation towards a peaceful, generous, just way. In a recent book, Shannon McKenna Schmidt writes of First Lady Eleanor Roosevelt, quote, in 1999, she was ranked ninth in the top 10 of Gallup's list of most widely admired people of the 20th century. Many historians describe Eleanor Roosevelt as the greatest American first lady. I'm Rebecca McCain with Alan Winson, and we are Bar Crawl Radio Podcast, recording from the porch of Gephardt's Beer Culture Bar on Manhattan's Upper West Side, across the street from the mortuary and a block and a half from Eleanor Roosevelt's statue in Riverside Park. The statue commemorates the work of the woman who oversaw the creation of the UN's Universal Declaration of Human Rights, and so much more. With us today is writer Shannon Schmidt and scholar Deborah Gardner, an historian at Hunter College's Roosevelt House, for a conversation about Eleanor Roosevelt. And here we go. Shannon McKenna-Schmidt has focused her literary work on travel. She has written for National Geographic, Traveler, Nashville Public Television, and Archive Magazine, and has appeared on Morning Joe and The Travel Show with Arthur and Pauline Frommer. Shannon Schmidt is with us today to talk about her most recent book, The First Lady of World War II, Eleanor Roosevelt's Daring Journey to the Front Lines and Back. And also with us is American and architectural historian, Deborah Gardner. Ms. Gardner has worked with the Municipal Art Society for Landmark Preservation and has written articles and books on the Roosevelts of New York. Ms. Gardner has curated exhibitions at the Roosevelt House on New York City's east side, including one featuring Eleanor Roosevelt's work with the United Nations to create the Declaration of Human Rights. Hey, thank you. Um, it's, it's a beautiful day here in uh, Upper West Side, Manhattan. We're on West 72nd Street at Gephardt's, and we want to welcome Deborah uh, Gardner uh, from the Roosevelt House at, at Hunter and Shannon McKenna-Schmidt to Bar Crow Radio for a conversation on a most important American figure. Um, I sense most of us know snippets about the wife of the Depression wartime president, FDR, but she is a most complex person, a key figure in the history of our world from World War II through the creation of the United Nations. So, Shannon, do you remember when you first got interested in Anna Eleanor Roosevelt? Well, I've always been an Eleanor Roosevelt admirer. I grew up in the Hudson Valley where the Roosevelts are a presence. And it was actually while I was reading a collection of Eleanor's column, My Day, that she wrote for 26 years. And I came across a mention that she visited Australia during a tour of the Pacific Theater in World War II. And it immediately piqued my interest because I had recently been to Australia and New Zealand. And it was reading that collection of My Day columns that really resulted in the First Lady of World War II. Deborah Gardner, 
Besides the fact that you work at Hunter College's Roosevelt House, why are you interested in Eleanor Roosevelt? Well, Eleanor was such a critical figure in 20th century America, actually long before she went to the Pacific. She emerged as a public figure in the 1920s through her work with the peace movement, uh, the Democratic Party, and in the 1930s, of course, she was the wife of the president, traveling around the country, visiting all the New Deal programs that were part of his strategy to rebuild the economy. And so she was present for many people, visiting them, they heard her on the radio, they saw her in newsreels, and as Stanley mentioned, her column, My Day, which was in over 100 newspapers, and millions of people read. So when you add it all up, it's, it's very easy to be a big fan of Eleanor Roosevelt. Tell us about the family dynasty that Anna Eleanor Roosevelt was born into. Uh, her uncle was Teddy Roosevelt, right? Yes, her uncle was Teddy Roosevelt. Her father was his brother. Her parents were deceased by the time she was eight or nine. Uh, she was raised uh, to be in the social elite category. She went to a wonderful boarding school, but not to college. She was a self-educated person her entire life, reading and writing. And she married her fifth cousin, <laughs> Franklin Delano Roosevelt, in 1905. And before World War I, she was basically a socialite. During World War I, especially when America became involved, she became a Red Cross volunteer. And that's really what set her on the road to a more public life. At a young age, her mother let Eleanor know she was not attractive and that as a woman, she would have to limit her aspirations. Her father was an alcoholic. How did these early experiences form Eleanor Roosevelt? I think she worked around them because um, she was able to prove to herself and be encouraged by others to think about her, her capabilities. And her boarding school in England, the head of the school, was very nurturing and encouraging, both personally and on an intellectual level. And, and what, what was her name? I think it's important, we, the boarding school teacher's name. Mademoiselle Sylvestre. She was a French woman, but her school was on the outskirts of London. Right. Right. Now, I just want to add one more thing. Eleanor was extremely tall for her generation. She was six feet tall, like think Michelle Obama. So she stood out. She had to stand out. And over time, I think that presence was something which also made her very appealing to people. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Her height, just the fact that she was tall. Her presence. Her yes. presence, her right, pre- right. Nice. Right. As an adult, um, Eleanor Roosevelt uh, was independent, energetic, as Deborah has been describing, yearned for adventure, certainly this specific trip that she, we're going to talk about her trip to 
to the Pacific during World War II. She knew Amelia Earhart. She wanted to learn how to fly. She was the first lady to travel in an airplane, we understand. She drove her own roadster. Um, one reporter said that more than any other first lady, she, quote, succeeded in being herself despite its taboos. So Shannon and Deborah, could you describe what was unique about Eleanor Roosevelt for her time? Well, the fact that Eleanor traveled so much or at all is one of the reasons that she was considered an unconventional first lady. And I love that when Eleanor entered the White House in 1933, the American public got a first lady the likes of which they had never seen before. Traditionally, first ladies stayed close to the White House. They primarily oversaw social functions. And they didn't take an active part in public life. But this was not going to work for Eleanor. And she really created a unique role for herself by combining her love of travel, her wanderlust, with her sense of social responsibility. And she ceaselessly crisscrossed the country, logging many, many, many thousands of miles on the road each year, inspecting New Deal initiatives, seeing and meeting people, and gathering information. And that information she used to exact change through her own means or providing it to the president and his policy advisors. And the other thing that contributed to her, her vibrancy and her uniqueness, is she had this extraordinary ability to connect with people, whatever the walk of life, whether she's down in a coal mine discussing um, the rights of, of coal miners, workers, wages, or she's at Buckingham Palace with the king and queen. And I think that was one of her really unique talents. Yeah, yeah. Throughout her life, as, as you both have mentioned, she worked for social justice. Uh, she was uh, pro-gender equality, uh, anti-war, especially after traveling in Europe after World War I and seeing the devastation of World War I. Uh, she was anti-racism, big part of our story. Where did she get this from? Was it from her family? Was it something that she got growing up? Her activities on behalf of peace came from the experience of going to Europe at the end of the war, World War I, mm -hmm. and seeing the devastation. After that, she became formally involved with groups that were championing um, international efforts for peace, like the League of Nations. Don't forget, she had gone to England in 1942 and she saw the devastation there of the cities from the German bombing. And uh, so she had a very uh, personal experience of this, but having worked with uh, peace advocates for a long time, she had a framework. So Shannon, your book, The First Lady of World War II, looks at Eleanor Roosevelt's six-week tour of the Pacific Theater of War in 1943. It was the midpoint of the war between the United States and the Empire of Japan. Uh, the Allied forces had just won their first offensive battle on the Solomon Island of Guadalcanal, several thousand miles northeast of Australia. Can you give us a little quick history lesson? What was going on in the war in the Pacific during that time in 1943? 
Well, in August 1943, when Eleanor set out for the Pacific, the United States had been at war with Japan for nearly two years. Eleanor felt that people on the home front were overly optimistic about the war's outcome, and she thought that they were becoming dangerously complacent. And she had numerous reasons for making the trip to the Pacific, but this was one of them, and to link the home front and the fighting front, and to remind the nation that they couldn't give up on their duties until the war was won because there were strikes at war production factories across the country. People were complaining about food rationing and shortages. So at this point in the war, she felt that the home front needed a reminder that the war was not over. If we slacked on production, that was going to risk the lives of the men on the distant battlefields. And as she reminded them, winning the war was the way that their loved ones would come home. Right, even though she was anti-war. I mean, that, that's a conflict there. Well, there's, there's one quote that I love. So I think it was 1940. Eleanor was talking to a pacifist youth group in the United States. And she said, you don't want to go to war. I don't want to go to war, but war may come to us. And once war happened, she really did everything that she could to contribute and to see it through. And why did you personally pick this story to tell, the story of Eleanor Roosevelt's trip to the Pacific during the war? There's so much to say about Eleanor. Why this particular trip? Well, I think that this story, it's a five-week period in Eleanor's life. I think it tends to get overshadowed within the larger scope of her life and her accomplishments, because it was a five-week period. But it had a tremendous impact on Eleanor. And early on in the research process, I came across something that she wrote in an autobiography six years after the trip to the Pacific. And she said, the Pacific trip left a mark from which I think I shall never be free. And I found that so haunting and so powerful and that she said it so many years later and it really compelled me to uncover what she experienced. She had taken a trip to Great Britain uh, earlier to a great success uh, and she showed her her credibility, her credence, her her, her power in being able to, to represent the United States. But traveling to the Pacific during World War II, I mean, it's hard to imagine how difficult that must have been. I mean, the entire area, huge area, was was in combat against, you know, the great empire of Japan and the great country of the United States. It must have been enormously... Could you just talk briefly about the difficulty of this? Can we get an idea? Sure. Life magazine... Um illustrated the Pacific area to their readers with aerial views of a globe. And they referred to it as the vastest single battlefield over which man has ever fought. So there's fighting across great distances over water, on islands with harsh terrain. Jungle warfare is a type of warfare that American servicemen have not encountered before. And at the time Eleanor set out for the Pacific, she was a highly experienced traveler. And yet even so, this trip was further, longer, more arduous and more dangerous than anything she had done before. And it's no frills. She flies commercial from New York to San Francisco and then she secretly boards a military transport plane in San Francisco. The plane is bare bones, it's loud and rumbling, it's unpressurized, it's freezing cold. She's sharing supplies with, or she's sharing space on the plane with supplies and sacks of mail and a crew that's being shifted. And she traveled on this transport plane to and from the Pacific and around the, the area while she was there. So it was, and it was very arduous physically, and she refused to slow down. An audience member asked her um, during a speech, 
that she was giving after she came back up here in New York City, actually, he asked her how many hours of sleep she got per night while she was in the Pacific. She replied that she could get by on five, but that she didn't always get them. So she was going from, from dawn until midnight. Right. The difficulties, I think, we're gonna, are going to add up as we, as we look closer at it. But just to go back, who initiated the trip to the Pacific? Was it the president who, who got it started, or was it something that she had wanted to do? They mutually decided that she would visit the Pacific. The timing was up to the president uh, as to when she would go. But I came across something in the FDR library files that indicate as early as January that she was um, indicating that she would like to go to Australia and the region. So I, and we mentioned briefly the trip to Great Britain the year before, and I think that she wouldn't have gone to the Pacific first, but she goes to Great Britain and it's a huge success. Uh, Winston Churchill tells her afterwards, you have left golden footprints behind you. And because of the success of that trip, she went to the Pacific a year later. Yeah, did, did I read in your book that um, her husband and her were traveling up uh, an elevator, a wooden elevator, and he kind of turned to her and says, would you like to go to the Pacific? And she said, yes! <laughs> Yes, exactly. And that's kind of the, I believe that happened. That's the official story that she was telling while she was in the Pacific. Um, but she had, she had been nudging a bit before that. But, and she had wanted to go to Russia and China, but FDR wanted to meet with the leaders of those countries first. Um, so the, so he's also was encouraging her to go to the Pacific. And he was always very supportive of her travels. Right. He benefited from them. But I also think that he knew she needed this personally. Eleanor was a journalist, clearly. I mean, Deborah still just with her, uh, her My Day, which she published six days a week. Um, uh, enormous amount of writing. Did FDR, you think, use his wife to report on what was happening in other parts of the world, places that maybe he couldn't get to? Yes, absolutely. And that's one of the really incredible things is not only is the First Lady of the United States in an active theater of war, she's reporting to the president and the home front while she's there, something that hadn't been done before and hasn't been done since. And she wore only Red Cross uniforms the entire time she was in the Pacific. And that was partly to cut down on the amount of luggage that she brought, so it pared down her clothing. And she carried a typewriter. Yes, because she had to adhere to a very strict luggage limit just like anybody else. And it was somewhere around 40 pounds, which is not a lot. And yes, and, and she lugged a heavy manual typewriter with her so that she could keep writing my day in real time. And so the American public was getting reports from the First Lady while she is in the Pacific Theater. Right. Uh, is it possible that another reason, and I think you present this in your book, um, for her to go to the Pacific was to get her out of uh, view of the American press because she is, and she was so controversial in her racial statements and that if you want the war to keep going, you can't keep doing this. And so he was getting her out of the front page, so to speak. Is there some truth to that? I think that, um, well, and there were race riots in Detroit in June of that year, and people in the North and the South accused Eleanor of having blood on her hands because there were deaths. Um, I think that some in the Roosevelt administration thought, okay, maybe it's a good idea, especially after that took place, to let's get her out of the country. However, based on my research and the timing of letters and other documents, that this trip was... was um, in, in talks and in consideration before 
the the race riots in June of 1943 right, right, that right. may then have encouraged some in the Roosevelt administration to. Uh, w w one of the things, I mean, history repeats itself. Um, this sense of getting tired of war was happening in the United States at that point. We were just kind of in the middle of it then. And so um, the president had to convince people this was the right thing to do. So was part of her trip a, a propaganda publicity to say, you know, this is why we're here, this is why we're fighting? I think that it was not so um, calculated is probably too strong of a word, but not as calculated as that. And Eleanor, during her time as First Lady, had an enormous media presence. And the media presence was even greater during the time that she went to the Pacific. There was my day, there were press conferences, newspapers were talking about it globally. And she really, in my opinion, um, used it as a way to keep talking about the things to the American public that she wanted them to understand. For example, um, she said that science taught us how to kill more efficiently, but because of advances in science and medicine, service meant more lives were saved. If you didn't out, die outright in battle, it meant you were probably going to live. And one of the things that she was doing was preparing the American public for the great number of disabled servicemen who would be coming back, how to treat them. Um, she's, she's telling people not to complain about food rationing and shortages and to get your part of the job done. And so I really think that she used her, her media platforms during the war and the Pacific trip in particular to keep reminding people. One of the things that's heartbreaking to me is that she tells people and women in particular to talk to their servicemen when they come home about their experiences. And so, so she almost seemed very progressive in a way. And all of this is just because she cared. There are so many examples of, of her individually, you can tell that she cares individually about the servicemen. Right, right. Um, uh, and I'd like to talk more about that, but you know, just, just I mean, it's happening today where people make like stupid statements about people that are doing good work. And here she was doing, you know, wonderful work, yet people complained about what she was doing, that her traveling to the Pacific was costing money to the military, that it was taking up space on airplanes, accused of her profiting from the trip. I mean, all of that. Um, and, but, but what is your response to that? Because I think it still goes on today. It does. And so this trip was kept secret for the first 10 days for safety reasons as Eleanor Island hopped through the South Pacific. Once she got to New Zealand, news broke about the trip. And as with all of her undertakings, there was praise, there was criticism, and a lot of a lot of misinformation as well. You said, you know, some some things stay the same or or repeat themselves in cycles. There was a lot of deliberate misinformation because um, she actually paid for the trip herself, except where she couldn't, like riding a military transport plane. And yet people persisted that the government was paying for her trip. She even bought the Red Cross uniforms herself. Um, she did not f fly on a private plane. She flew on a regular flight of the Air Transport Command. Everywhere they went, they took mail, supplies, shifted personnel. Um, so yeah, there was, there was a lot of misinformation. And something I find amusing is that um, some of her biggest critics are still these traditionalists who lament not having a more conventional first lady who knew her proper place. And one couple from Atlanta even telegrammed the president a couple months after her trip and asked him to confine Eleanor more to the White House, which I figure he probably had a good laugh over that. Even with all her travels, when she was in the United States, 
she's kept up her first lady duties. Um, you know, for example, if she had a meeting in New York, which she frequently did, she would get on the night train, come to Washington, and host a tea for 300 people. So all those years during her domestic uh, travels, as opposed to her international, she did not forsake her first lady duties. Her four sons were in the war also, and people knew this. She didn't keep reminding them of it, but it made her a figure who wasn't just talking off the top of her head. She had that deep feeling and concern and worry about her four sons that she shared with so many other mothers and grandmothers in America. Why did she want to take the trip? Personally, what was her? Yeah, personally. Eleanor felt an enormous sense of obligation toward the generation of young men being sent into battle and who were bearing the brunt of the war. And a primary reason for the trip was to thank U.S. troops for their service, thank them herself and on behalf of the president, and to boost morale. It was also an informal diplomatic mission to Australia and New Zealand. And we mentioned briefly the Red Cross uniform. She also went as a representative of the American Red Cross, and she inspected the organization's facilities while she was in the region. So being Eleanor, she heaped many, many things onto her plate. Shannon, you write that Roosevelt's Pacific tour covered 25,000 miles. Is it true that she traveled without even a personal escort? She typically would travel with her secretary, who is also her friend. She wanted to try to cut down on the criticism. She she did not take any personal companion, friend, family member, nothing with her. Um, They did assign her, I think, a, a... Um, an army PR person, but nobody close to her. And so this was also different for her. This was the longest she had been away without someone close to her also traveling with her, which added to a sense of isolation for her. This was a very long trip. And even when she went to England, she had friends there. She saw her son who was stationed there at the time. With the Pacific, it's five weeks. Um, mail takes time to catch up with her a lot of the times, just as it does for the troops. And so, and she's going at a very fast pace, all of which started to, you know, as, as they would wear on a person, even, even energetic Eleanor emotionally, physically. People had a hard time keeping up with her. I could not keep up with her. I have traveled for five weeks at a stretch, and that was doing tourist things and resting when I wanted. It's really extraordinary when when you think about what she did while she was in the Pacific. Right. You're listening to Bar Crawl Radio Podcast about Eleanor Roosevelt's trip during World War II to the Pacific War Zone. We're talking with Roosevelt historian Deborah Gardner and Shanna McKenna-Schmidt, author of The First Lady of World War II. I was doing things that had not been done before. Um, I think my husband was really very long-suffering and very good because uh, he never tried to keep me to the pattern and so he made no objections when I was offered lecture trips and I used to go for three weeks every spring and three weeks every autumn and it gave me the opportunity to see what uh, the results were of things that were being done and by the government. And while he had all the information in the world, um, 
perhaps it was a little more uh, an addition to uh, what he would hear in any other way. I remember very well on the anti-lynching bill, he explained that he could not make uh, that bill a must because he had to have the Southern votes for rearmament, getting ready in case you had to meet a war. And <clears throat> so I said, uh, well, now I feel very strongly about the anti-lynching bill, you say you're not sure it's constitutional, perhaps it isn't, but I feel that, that uh, it should pass if, if the public can talk about it. And uh, he said, well, I didn't say that you had to take any special stand. You do what you think is right. And um, on one other occasion, um, I asked him about something, and he said, well, I can always say I can't do anything with my wife. And I, I do want to get to um, her actual interaction with people out in the Pacific, not just with U.S. military soldiers in hospitals and not, um, but also she met the people that live there in Australia and, and New Zealand. And she also got into controversies out there. Could you tell the story of the nose rub and how, that, how people reacted to that back home? So when Eleanor was in New Zealand, she went to Rotorua, the home of the Maori, the indigenous people of New Zealand. And New Zealand was an integrated society. The Maori were respected, they had rights. When Eleanor arrived in New Zealand, uh, one of the Maori Federation, um, a greeting, a written greeting, was delivered to Eleanor from them by the Prime Minister. So the Maori are very well respected. Eleanor goes to Rotorua. She is greeted in a traditional manner, which is a pressing of the noses. It's a gesture akin to shaking hands. And someone took a picture of it. So, one cameraman got one single image of it. And the photograph didn't appear at the time, but people knew about this, uh, this traditional greeting. A congressman ranted about the fact that, that this had happened on the floor of the House of Representatives. Milton Berle joked about it. Newspapers commented on it. And then in December of that year, so a couple months after the Pacific trip, the photo was actually published in Look Magazine. And it ignited the frenzy all over again. How did she respond to that reaction? She really didn't. Uh, the, you know, the extraordinary thing about Eleanor is she just, for the most part, shook off the criticism and just did her thing. And in 1944, she actually wrote an article titled How to Take Criticism that was published in Ladies Home Journal. And the conclusion she came to, and this is, this is her line, you're damned if you do and damned if you don't. So you may as well do what you think is right and what you believe in. <laughs> Another thing that she did is she didn't hang out with the officers. She hung out with the, the soldiers, the grunts on the ground. Um, could you talk a little bit about that? Yes, so Eleanor, she was up at dawn to breakfast with servicemen. I love that on Bora Bora, she surprised down the ranks because she was supposed to breakfast in the officer's mess, and she said, no, no, I'm gonna go eat with the enlisted men. And she borrowed mess gear from an awestruck young serviceman. And so she, her, and her four sons had said to her, make sure you speak with the enlisted men. They were all officers, but they said, if you really wanna know what's going on, um, and so she, she made sure to spend a lot of time with the enlisted men to find out what was going on because she provided reports to the president and she also provided a nine-page report to the head of the American Red Cross. And one of the things she noted was in the places where officers had too much and men had too little. So she was looking out for them. Well, tell the story about she, she ate from a African-American man's dish or? Ice cream cone. Ice cream cone. <laughs> So she, when she went to Great Britain, the Secretary of War 
asked FDR to ask Eleanor, could she please not address race while she's there? We don't want to cause any consternation in the military, and 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 that black servicemen were were treated well in in Great Britain. But when she goes to the Pacific, um, she does address race in various forms. She makes sure to be photographed with black servicemen. She speaks with journalists who who represent black publications. And yeah, one of the things that she did was there was. Um, she went up to a serviceman. He was eating an ice cream cone, and she said, "Can I have some of that?" And he said, "Okay." <laughs> and so, so she had had some of the ice cream. And I think one of the things is that at this point in the war, Eleanor has a two-pronged mission when she's in the Pacific: rally people to see the war through and get it done. But she's also looking ahead to peace and the post-war years. And one of that is is better civil rights. And she does address race directly in a speech uh, in Brisbane, Australia, her, her last stop in Australia. Right, right. She visited um, the injured in hospitals wearing her Red Cross uniform. Could you talk a bit about that, what that experience was like, and how difficult it must have been? Because these young men were not in good shape. They were not in good shape, and Eleanor walked miles and miles of hospital wards. And she also had visited a lot in the United States as well. And she said that one sees the results of the war in the hospitals. And she said that when she's, she was a class act when she was walking through these hospital wards, offering words of comfort or a joke. But she said that inside she was burning with resentment at what was being done to these young men. And Yes, some of them just so grievously injured. She said that she would never forget the smell in the burn wards. Well, well, well. Um, there's one story, and if you could tell it, if you don't want, you don't want, is about a young man who had just gotten off of the battlefield, and he was still wearing the wounds, uh, the, uh, the bandages, and he was pretty much done for. And she rallied him. Could you talk about that? Yes, yeah, so there are actually a couple of instances there. So the, the first young man, um, within days of coming back, Eleanor gave a speech for war bonds. And during that speech, she talked about her experiences in the Pacific. And she told the American public, I love that she was very forthright about making them understand the human cost of the war. And in this radio address, she talks about this young man that she met at a first-line hospital who was so recently injured that he was still in the set of bandages from when he fell in battle. Um, All he had to his name was a Red Cross comfort kit. He was in pain, and yet he still managed to smile and thank the people who were helping him. And then there was another young man. um, For security reasons, Eleanor's plane was detoured to Christmas Island in the Pacific, which is where she had begun the trip. Uh, her first inspection stop. So she ends up randomly back on Christmas Island, and the commander there asked her, could you please speak to this one particular serviceman? He had lost part of his leg during uh, when a tank overturned on him during training. And he was so despondent, it was affecting his recovery. And Eleanor spoke with him, and he's very listless, Um, And she says to him, she goes, well, what if I see your mother when I get back? And he's like, would you? And she said, yes, but you have to promise me. I will promise you that I will see your mother, but you have to promise me that you will try and get well. And they both did what they promised. And she did meet, she invited um, this this serviceman's mother to her her apartment um, on Washington Square, and they met there. And there are so many instances of just this 
level of caring that she had for these men on an individual level, and it was it was heartbreaking to her. I, I thank you. I, I don't think we can leave the story of her trip to the Pacific without mentioning Guadalcanal as kind of a big reason why she went. Why did she want to go to Guadalcanal? Guadalcanal was the site of the first major Allied offensive in the Pacific War, and visiting there was a tribute that Eleanor felt that she really owed to the men in uniform to see where so many had lost their lives or received their injuries. It was also a personal test of courage for her. She was afraid that she would be perceived as lacking courage if she weren't allowed to go. Here's Eleanor Roosevelt, who had courage in spades, and she told FDR that she didn't know if she could face another serviceman in a hospital again if she weren't allowed to go to Guadalcanal because she thought they would think that she was afraid. And she, you know, she put on a, a, a well, I was gonna. I was gonna say she put on a campaign to to visit Guadalcanal. Yeah, because first, first she had to convince the president, and she had to convince Halsey. Right, she had to convince uh, Admiral Halsey, and but ultimately, what persuaded Admiral Halsey was not any arguments that she made, but the power of her example. And he didn't like it when VIPs came through his area, took his focus away from the war. He thought they were uh, superficial PR junkets or political gestures. But they did spend some time together when she visited his headquarters on the island of New Caledonia. Reports from other military personnel in the region and a tremendous amount of press coverage. He saw that her motivation was genuine. Eleanor Roosevelt was the real deal. And so by the time she returned to his headquarters after visiting Australia and New Zealand, he had gone from dead set against her visiting Guadalcanal to allowing her to go. So clearly this has been a very difficult trip for her, physically, emotionally draining. You mentioned that she said it left a a mark on her. What did she take away from the trip, do you think? Well, she lost 30 pounds while she was overseas. She fell into a deep depression after she got back. A close friend of hers explained it by saying that, that as long as she had to keep going, her iron will got her through, but that she was just so disheartened about the continued bloodshed and dying. And what it did was it made her even more determined to work for peace, to see the war through, and to build the kind of a world where this carnage would never happen again. So you think that this experience had a direct influence on her work with the United Nations after the war? I think that the seeds of her later work can be seen in this trip, of course, on on the global stage as well. There was a mayor in Rockhampton, Australia, who said, while she was in the Pacific in 1943, we would love to see you at the peace table. And because of circumstances, that ended up coming true. So we want to ask one more question. Um, This topic is quite large and require another program But Eleanor Roosevelt chaired the committee writing the UN's Universal Declaration for Human Rights. Um, Briefly, could you tell us about the declaration and how Roosevelt kept a group of disagreeing, powerful men, how she got them to agree on anything? When President Roosevelt died, he had been preparing to go to the opening of the United Nations, of which he was a founder. Uh, And... She was going with him. Um, President Truman, later that year, offered her a position on the U.S. delegation to the first regular meetings of the United Nations in London. She was the only woman. 
And she was assigned to what was thought to be a kind of obscure committee. Uh, the men who she was with, who should have known better, having seen her in action for almost 12 years, looked down upon her. It's kind of hard to imagine. But that obscure committee became the home of the assignment to look into creating a document on human rights. Now, she had been concerned about peace and human rights and freedoms for a long time. In fact, President Roosevelt in 1941 talked about the four freedoms, right? Freedom of religion and speech, freedom from fear, uh, and he, that became a very popular tagline in 1943 when Norman Rockwell made pictures to exemplify these four freedoms. And so she was familiar with those, which had also been then incorporated into other documents, and came into the UN through this work on a Declaration of Human Rights. She ran the committee. She had decades of experience running committees, getting things done. She also had decades of experience about how to bring people along over lunch, over dinner, and be persuasive. Over, over cocktails, Over too. cocktails. And that's what she used. She used her personal experience and her persuasiveness to bring people along. Her committee had 13 countries on it, represented, including the Soviet Union, who tried to block this as much as they could. Before the declaration was full-blown, she was defending the right of refugees to live uh, in the country they wanted to live in and not to be sent back, for example, to the Soviet Union. And that was a defeat of the Soviet Union um, position. So by the time this comes up for a vote in 1948, the fall of 1948, she has brought along a lot of countries with her countries that might have been expected to object to the language of equality of religion and gender. And when it was finally voted upon on December 11, 1948, by the UN, she got a standing ovation. Yeah. This, this story of the um, Universal Declaration for Human Rights, which is now a part of the UN uh, Charter, is is a huge story and really needs another program that we that to talk about it because though it was successful it wasn't entirely successful look what's going on in the world today no but it it, it kind of set a bottom line yep. to look at yep. and if people are interested they can go to the roosevelt house public policy institute website and find the exhibit i did on the 70th anniversary of the Universal Declaration, where they can read a lot more about Eleanor's role. And this year, uh, we'll be celebrating the 75th anniversary. And let me say one more thing. This committee began its work in New York City. 
the first headquarters of the committee work were in the Bronx at the then Hunter College campus, now Lehman College. So we should be proud that Eleanor brought this committee her experience of living in New York with a very diverse population of people from around the world, from many religions, and she brought this into the Universal Declaration over the course of the next three years. So Eleanor Roosevelt was a most unusual first lady. I cannot see Jill Biden visiting Ukraine right now. Um, the idea of a president's wife going into a war zone to visit the troops is an anathema to today's politics, today's society. What can we learn about Eleanor Roosevelt's trip to the Pacific and her leadership at the UN? Well, in terms of the Pacific trip, one of the things that always strikes me about Eleanor Roosevelt is that she didn't have to do the things that she did. She did it to make life better for people, to make society better. And she also had a reputation for going to see things for herself, and that's exactly what she was doing in the Pacific. Will we ever have another Eleanor Roosevelt, do you think? No. I, I, I honestly, I, I don't think so. Um, I see, I see essence shades in, in other first ladies um, in, in Eleanor, but I, I think that she was so unique. What drove her was unique, and also the circumstances of the time. Too bad. It is too bad. <laughs> too bad. Claire Booth Luce, American playwright and politician, noted that Eleanor Roosevelt was among the world's best-loved women for many reasons, but above all, no woman has ever so comforted the distressed or distressed the comfortable. We want to thank Shannon McKenna-Schmidt and Deborah Gardner for joining us today to talk about a moment in the life of this great American moral, enormously moral, human being, Eleanor Roosevelt. Thank you very much. We are Bar Crawl Radio Podcast, talking to interesting people doing important work for their community at our neighborhood bar. Today, Gephardt's Beer Culture Bar on Manhattan's Upper West Side. Thanks to Lou Tabakin for this show's opening music from his composition, Garden at Lifetime. And a big thanks once again to Wade Ripka's Eastern Blockheads Band for the BCR Bop-Bop theme.